This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Now and Not Yet. Pressing in when you're waiting, wanting, and restless for more. Written and narrated by best-selling author Ruth Cho Simons and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Before beginning this week's episode, I do want to caution listeners. This week's conversation includes details of child and domestic abuse that may trigger some listeners and is not appropriate for young ears. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. If you've been around here long, you know the mission of this podcast is to remind you that God can use you to impact His kingdom no matter your story. He does the changing. He does the redeeming. He does the restoring. It does require daily surrender and trust, but His grace is enough. Today's guest, friend, fellow podcaster and sister in Christ, Amy Watson, shares how Jesus is the star of her story that includes childhood neglect and abuse, domestic abuse, and living with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. We dive deep into the covering of the grace of God during some of the darkest hours of her life and how she is using those scars to serve her Savior. Before we begin, I would like to draw your attention to a free resource I have on my website, 10 Scripture Prayers to Calm Your Heart. If you would like a copy of those prayers, Go to graceenoughpodcast.com and you will find them on the homepage. I personally have printed off those prayers and have laminated them and placed them in the area where I do my quiet time so that I can pray them to God for myself and other people that I love on a regular basis. So go to graceenoughpodcast.com and you will find 10 scripture prayers to calm your heart on the homepage. I'm Amber Cullum, and this is episode 109 with Amy Watson. Good morning, friends. Today, I have a fellow podcaster, but also someone who has become a dear friend to me. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have been looking forward to this. This is might be the only way we actually get to talk. I know, except for when I visit Florida next time, there's going to be an in-person meeting. I know it. Oh, girl, yes. You come up here to <laughs> uh, come up here to where I am. You know where I am and That's see right. all the stuff. Yeah, That's no, right. we're, we're going to see each other for sure. I hope so. Um, okay, so introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell everybody a little bit about what you do before we dive into your story and how God has really shown his grace in your life. Well, first of all, thank you for this opportunity to be on your show. I, I uh, this was one early on um, that I wanted to be on, and I'm and I enjoy your show and and, and your audience. Um, you know, I, just amazing, amazing work you're doing. So I wanted to shout you out for that. But thank but my you. name is Amy Watson. I tell people often because this question is always so interesting. Um, I try to be obedient because I want to know it. I want to speak the truth into myself. And and so the first description I'd like to give of myself is that I am the precious daughter of the Most High God. And I have to tell myself that every day. But practically speaking, I am an entrepreneur. I'm a CEO of a restaurant management recruiting firm. And so my life is pretty interesting right now. We are recording this in the middle of a pandemic. 
but my pandemic pivot was um, a podcast. I am a survivor of 35 years of trauma. I have uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And the last, since April, so 10 months of my life have really been poured into uh, really pivoting from a blog and a manuscript and a book to a podcast to help people. And so uh, that's why I wanted to be on your show, because I believe that you have an audience that might need to hear some hope and healing. I love it because I texted you this morning, actually, your second season just dropped today. And obviously, by the time this airs, it may be, you know, nearing completion. But um, I was just so moved by the episode this morning. And people came to my mind who I'm like, you know, we a lot of us don't even know that we may have post traumatic stress disorder. And we're going to get into that a little bit, how it's not just that person who pops in your mind that is maybe affected from a military standpoint. And so something that we like, I've as I've heard your story, the definition of turmoil is a state of great disturbance confusion or uncertainty and it is fitting of portions of your childhood and so take us back to when you were a little girl and share with our listeners a little bit about the turmoil that you would call your childhood yeah so amber i'm going to share with you a story that i've not shared on any other show i as i mentioned i am a survivor of 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 a lot of trauma and so my first memory is of my sister going to kindergarten My, my sister's three years older than i am we were padlocked in a room um, that I have dubbed the prison room. And um, sometimes we're allowed to eat and sometimes we're not. Sometimes we saw um, my mom and my stepdad and sometimes we didn't. So th- that, that kind of turmoil from a very young age culminated in a lot of abuse. But being locked in that room is something that I don't talk about a lot. And um, besides maybe, I don't even think my own podcast I've told this story, um, but we were in those room, we were in that room for, I would say, 16, 18 hours a day, um, only allowed to come out when they deemed it, um, you know, their ability to deal with us. And so that was, so I don't, it, it's so interesting when people ask me in the context, like you asked about childhood, like, what is that? I don't even understand what that is. Oh and, and so, but, but, but I would say turmoil for sure. I loved my mom. I didn't understand why she locked us in a room. I didn't understand why we didn't get food. I didn't understand why the physical abuse happened and why she let all this stuff happen. And so from the time I was seven to the time I was 14, when I went to a children's home, the definition of my life was absolute turmoil. I was mm-hmm. supporting. I tell people all the time I've been working since I was seven years old. Um, I cut azaleas off of people's bushes. I'm sorry if you're listening to this and I cut them off of your bush because they're free. Uh, but mm. I, but I sold the azaleas so that I could eat. Yeah. So, so that's a little, that, that's the cliff notes of why I would absolutely define my childhood as, as, as turmoil. And so your sister, it was just the two of you? Yes. Okay. And so seven years old, you go into a children's home. I went to a children's home when I was 14. So there were 14. Okay. So significant amount of trauma, seven different sexual abusers from the time I was seven to I was 14, all the physical abuse being locked in the room and basically straight up neglect. So I, I went when I was 14. And so from seven to 14, were you in the same location the whole time? Like your mom lived in the same house or were you going from place to place being locked in different rooms? 
place to place being locked in different rooms. And so we lived in a bad part of town and I'm sure that would surprise nobody with a story like this, but there was no stability in that regard. Um, you know, we would get evicted because the rent wasn't getting paid. And so we would go to another place. And um, it's interesting because I've never really thought of that question before, but yeah, place to place locked in different rooms. And so when you would go to school, which I'm assuming you sounds like you all got out to go to school, was it pretty obvious to people in the school system that, hey, something's not going going right at home? So I, I, I thought about this in retrospect as, as I was praying about this interview. Um, my third grade teacher noticed something. And um, my, I have a late birthday. My birthday's in December. And so back then, I, you could start kindergarten when you were four years old. Well, by the time I got to the third grade, that had caught up with me, everybody being younger than I was. Well, I ended up repeating third grade. And for, for anybody who knows me, I mean, I, I'm not, you know, I, I did well in school. And so when I tell people I repeated a grade, they're like, whoa, what, what? And for the longest time, I blame that on the fact that I was just younger than everybody else. But now when I look back at it, how old are you when you're in third grade? Seven years old. And Absolutely. so, and so I remember those teachers you know, being nurturing and kind. And I got picked for the patrol for fifth grade, you know, them just trying to involve me. But th this was the, you know, late seventies, early eighties, and it wasn't like it is today. That's right. There's not, e I, I, I am curious, really, and you may not even know, like, did you, were they even considered mandated reporters then? You know, it's hard to even know because yeah, we definitely have a whole different perspective on abuse, praise the Lord, yes. um, than what we used to. To the point where sometimes now there's, you know, podcasts and things coming out about people that maybe have been wrongfully accused. And I'm sure that happened then, too. But right. hopefully that does not happen near as often as um, one might think. Well, so what happened at that point when you did enter a children's home? Like who came along to just say no more? This is, yeah. is going to be put yeah. to an end right now. Yeah. So during that time, my sister, um, again, three years older than I am. And so when you're seven to 10, that's not a big deal. But when you're 10 to 13, it is a big deal. And so about the time she turned uh, 13, so that would have made me 10, she she moved out and went and lived with some friends of my mom's and really kind of got got a fresh start and, and, and mm. left me there with with my mom. And I just kept doing my thing. Um, by a series of providential events, got in church, went to church on one of those old, hot, red, you know, yellow school buses, met Jesus, met a lot of people who loved Jesus and who loved me and just kind of nurtured me. And again, the, I know people at church knew something was going on, but they couldn't put their finger on it. Well, by the time I was 14, I was, I was at that point just done. I was so done. I was so needy. I needed somebody to love me and my mom didn't. She had brought a man in our home who had just gotten out of prison and he was a pedophile. I went to church that night and told my pastor's wife, I said, this is what's going on at home. And uh, she, she just grabbed me and they took me in to the hospital and got exams and all of that stuff. And um, the state got involved. The state of Florida got involved. They investigated, they put him in jail. They told my mom, they said, Hey, if he doesn't come back, you can have Amy back. We deem you fit, which is terrifying to me, but uh, we deem you fit to be her mom. We will bring her back. She said, awesome. I want her back. This is supposedly what she said. I stayed with my pastor and, and his wife 
that week while they investigated. And so we packed my stuff up, whatever, you know, I had a, I took my Bible and something, some people had donated some clothes. I literally remember it being like a Publix bag. Um, and, uh, we show up at the house and I don't even get out of the car because I could see the note on the door and she had left a sticky note gone to get married mom. And, um, the, um, the social workers, then we went to the Duval County courthouse, where as a 14 year old adult, I stood and watched that judge sign away my mom's parental rights. I lived with my pastor and his wife for 18 months. I was very, very needy. I, ne- I, I was, yeah. they had three children of their own, but I was very needy. A lot of attention seeking behavior did real well in school. I was in, I was in a Christian school. My uncle paid for that for that. I am grateful, did well in school, but needed a lot of attention. And because they were in ministry and had three kids of their own, they knew about this children's home. And so they took me there when I was 14 and, um, I still say it was the best years of my life being in a children's home. Wow. I mean, Amy, it takes a lot of courage, even when you know you're being wounded by someone that you love and who is claiming to love you to go really and tell. And so you say you were really fed up, but I'm just curious, do you remember what it was that finally you were just like, I got to tell somebody and the person that I'm going to tell is my pastor's wife because I know I can trust her. Like, do you remember what really triggered that? Yeah. You know, it's sad when you have a dark night of your soul at 14, but one Saturday night I had a, you know, I had a dark night of my soul at 14 and um, my pastor's wife, whose name is Gail had just loved on me. um, And we would go to summer camp and she would make sure I was in her Mm -hmm. cabin And I just was laying in bed one night in that dark night. And I just, I couldn't identify it when I was 14, but I can now. Yeah. I just wanted to be loved. You know, Um, I talk a lot on my podcast because I'm fascinated by the Enneagram, but I'm an Enneagram too. Our biggest fear is not being loved. And so I think that God made us in our Psalm 139. And that is very true about me. I want to be loved. And so that dark night of my soul when I was 14, I thought, well, Gail, Gail loves me. And I can trust her with this information. Yeah, I had no idea what she was going to do with it, but I could yeah. trust her with it. And I just was like, maybe I'll get a hug. Maybe somebody will come enter this hell with me because mm-hmm. I've been living it by myself. Yeah. And so when I that's that might be the first time I ever use those words fed up, but my soul was so broken, mm-hmm. so sad. Well, and at this point, you had already accepted Jesus as Savior because it sounds like. I mean, it is true providence that you end up that your mom would even let you go to church. But, and you can describe this better than I can, but from stories that I've heard in the past, a lot of times is even though there's neglect going on at home, they're often okay with just you going somewhere else so they don't have to think about you or worry about you or, you know, they can think, oh, maybe she's being cared for over there. Would you say that was true and that's why you got to go? 100%. As a matter of fact, I was at a friend's house when the people came to knock on a door and say, I have candy, you want to go to church? Um, And so, yeah, she didn't want us around at all. And once we got into school and got friends, we didn't need to be in the prison room because we were like, 
you don't want me around, I'll go to my friend's house. Yeah. And that's where I was when we got the knock on the door to go to church. You ask about whether I made a profession of faith. You're a little bit younger than me, but we're in the same vein of, and I heard some another guest say this on one of your other shows. It just made me laugh out loud. I'm not sure which one took, um, but because, <laughs> <laughs> yes. you know, in those days, it was like hellfire and brimstone. Jesus oh is coming gosh, back the on. The whole Romans road thing, which I totally agree with, but it's like, Okay, if I pray this prayer 75 times, maybe God yes. will really accept me. And it's like, no. Yeah, my, and my favorite. Yeah, I used to just fall asleep. Lord, if I'm not saved, pray. You know, if I'm not saved, save me. Um, but I did I did have a time when I was 15 years old, and I remember actually the the repentance. Yeah. Because like, I was a good kid, and I was at the children's home. And I was a leader at the children's home. And I'll never forget their face when I went down to the altar and said, I need to get saved. I think I need to get saved. Because I, I was a good, I'm air quoting, you can't hear me or you can't see me listeners, but I was a good kid. And so a lot of times when you grow up and grow up in church, you don't think you have anything to repent from. Mm -hmm. but I do remember a time when I was 15 years old, when I was at the children's home and I was like, oh, I'm a sinner. And I, and, and so that's the time I always tell people that I actually made a profession of gotcha. faith. But. So you were in church and you were involved in it, but you had not really surrendered your life quite yet. I think that's fair. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about the children's home. You say it was the, some of the best years of your life. What was yeah. so great? Because sometimes you hear nightmare stories about children's homes. And so yeah. speak yeah. Uh, with gosh. us the joys and the delights of that place for you. Yeah, and I hope to have Mom and Dad McGowan on my on my show soon or on some audio, uh, just because they're in their Dad McGowan is ninety two now. Do but, you still um, have a relationship with them? Oh, 100 percent, one hundred percent. They, um, they, they, all my friends that listen to this show are going to be mad when they hear this, but they always tell me because when they opened the children's homes in nineteen sixty eight, they said, "If we help one kid, it'd be worth it." And Mom McGowan always whispers in my ear, "You're that one kid." Oh. And so, really quickly, in a nutshell, here's why I loved that place. I was there for about thirty minutes, and um, if you could believe this, I was very shy and very introverted and did not talk. And everyone listening to this who knows me is like, she's lying, but it is true. I was hiding in between an industrial sized refrigerator and a cabinet. Oh. And uh, this blonde, this white haired lady, all I see is a head. She pops her head in and she's there from Maggie Valley, North Carolina. So kind oh, of yes. where you are. <laughs> and she goes, well, hello. I can't even do her Southern accent. And I'm like, hi, you know? <laughs> and she's like, has anybody told you today? And I'm looking at her like, you are scary and weird and I am hiding. Leave me alone. I'm like, and, but I'm, I'm Southern. I'm, I was brought up and, and right. to be even, I didn't have a great mom, but she, she was a debutante and a general's daughter. So she taught me mm. manners. And so, so I was like, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. She said, has anybody told you today that they love you? Oh, and I just looked at her and said, no, ma'am. She said, well, I'm Mom McGowan and I love you. And from that moment on, she took me under her wings and they were not actively involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the children's home, but we sang on the weekends. That's how we raised money for the children's home. We went to churches and sang on the weekends. And so she picked me for special jobs. And then dad McGowan, of course, as you can imagine, I was a I'm not a real fan of men. Yeah. And, um, and he knew that, but gentle soul, gentle, gentle soul cry at the drop of a hat. 
But he knew too that my love language was service. Again, back to that Enneagram too. And he said to me one day, he said, would you do me a favor? We were on summer tour. I'm fear and trembling. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Um, will you make sure every night that I have a glass of water on the pulpit? Oh. Yes, sir, I could do that. And um, to this day, he calls me his cupbearer. Um, oh, the, my gosh. The, the, reason why, the reason why those are the best years of my life is I've never been loved mm. more purely and without any expectation. At least I had not up, been up until that point. Mm-hmm. Pure, undefiled love keeps wow. no wrongs. First Corinthians love. They built into me value. Uh, they loved me well. They didn't lock me in a room. That was a good start. Right. <laughs> and I say that just to lighten things up a little bit. No, um, but I mean, but, it's when your baseline, though, it, you say that, and I'm like, actually, that's a good point. Because to someone like me, that seems ridiculous. But when your baseline for care and affection is that, you better believe that's a good start. Yeah. And so I still have great relationships with them. I am will be devastated when the Lord takes them home. Um, but, uh, they, they're just, that, that place was everything to me. I, I just, you know, it's, it's, and people always look at me kind of like you are because it was an, it was an institution. We couldn't walk up to the refrigerator anytime we wanted, you know, I shared a room with five other girls. You can imagine what that's like when you're all in high school with a little (laughs) tiny bathroom. And listen, I had one sister and I know what that's like, and we loved each other deeply. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, but some of my dearest friends are still from, from there and we have a bond. We, you know, we, you know, we have a bond. And so, yeah, I love, love, love that ministry. It's still in existence. It's Hope International Ministries in Tampa, Florida. If anybody has a heart to look, to, to reach out to them, more importantly, if you know children that need help, they are still ministering to neglected and abandoned children. And so, so, um, yeah. So tell me then you ended up going to a Christian college and is that how that came about as a result of the ministry, you know, in the children's home that you were a part of? You know, it's so funny you asked me that question because I never really knew that, Hey, you could go to a real school, a real school. I didn't mean it that way because I love my college. I never applied to any of the major state schools, even though I would have gotten in. But to make a long story short, I had been accepted. I, I I knew I wanted to go to a Christian college, and I, and think and and God had His hand of protection on me because I did not not need to go from the children's home to a state school where I probably would have gotten in all kinds of bad stuff. And so I knew I wanted to go to a Christian college. I was accepted into the college that I call the Christian college in the panhandle. Um, and the reason why I applied there was because I wanted to be a doctor and they had a good pre-med program. And to make a very long story short, um, I, Mom McGowan called me to the front of the Greyhound tour bus one day and she said, hey, she said, I know you want to go to, to Pensacola Christian College and you've been accepted and all that. And we had no idea how I was going to pay for it. She said, wow. but, would you, but would you consider Clearwater Christian College? And I was like, sure. I went and interviewed with Clearwater Christian College, Ben Puckett, uh, shout out, and was offered a full ride scholarship to Clearwater Christian College and attended there and graduated and didn't pay a dime. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is so amazing how there's just certain things you can see God's hand in it. And I'm not saying that God's hand is not upon your life when things don't work out like that. But I think the majority of us, when we look back and just pay attention to the threads of faithfulness, you see it in different capacities, even though it's not like you didn't face any more challenges after this. 
Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. That that is the truth. But they did equip me for those challenges. That's right. And so that's that's the thing. You graduate. You eventually met and married a man who abused you to the point of threatening to take your life. And so, Amy, how in the world, after you come out of this children's home, does that happen? Because the reality is you're not alone in that. That happens to plenty of people. Yeah. So let me first say that um, there's several reasons why I agreed to this interview. One of them is I love the message of grace. I love grace enough and grace so sufficient for even me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, like a lot of childhood sexual abuse survivors, um, there are a couple different directions that, that, that I find in my work and working with trauma survivors and all the people that I know, which is by the way, one out of four women, mm-hmm. um, childhood kids that were abused as children, especially women go one of a couple of directions. One is promiscuity. I never can say that word promiscuity. That was not the direction I went. The other one, though, is just go find anybody that will love me, who will love me for me. I love that J.J. Hiller song, who will love me for me, Mm. uh, not for who I um, have been or who I'll become, but for who I am now. And so I graduated from Clearwater Christian College, decided I was going back home to Jacksonville. And there is a reason why they say you can't go back home. And I went back, um, had gotten out of church at that point, decided, you know what, I had enough church in my life, got enough God's word in my heart. I wasn't going to skip a Sunday here. Never found a church. Met and married. Well, met this man who was just completely like if if you would have said who's Amy's type. Click, you know, check, check, check. Except for the love Jesus part. Mm-hmm. And he could tell me a story of how he grew up in the Catholic Church, and he he under he could tell me the story, but I never saw fruit. I did what I was always taught not to do. I moved in with him before I got married. And, um, and I'm not saying I I do not believe in a punitive God. And so I want everybody listening here to know that I do not believe in a punitive God, but that did not help my cause. I was not walking with the Lord. I did not have a community of people who were watching me. I did not have an Amber Colm who would call me and go, girl, I don't, Or, or I didn't have some, you know, we call it a friend in a mirror or accountability. I didn't have that because I wasn't seeking it because I didn't want it because I knew what everybody would tell me. And Isn't so that I just, the truth, that right there. And I'm not saying that that can't be changed because you are in a different place now. But that is so often my story. And a lot of people's story is we don't seek it out because we already know what that person's going to say. Yeah, uh, like, my, like my friend group now would chain me to something. And we, <laughs> and, and, and we, we laugh. I, I don't, I have not dated very much and nor do I have the desire to, but we laugh. Should uh, I ever date, there will be a committee of people uh, that will have <laughs> Praise to. Praise God for that. Yes. Cause I have, I have zero ability to find uh, the, I'm going to air quote bad in anybody. And so I thought, you know, mm. this is a great guy. He acts like he loves me. I worked hard uh, to gain his love and uh, about, so we got married in June and February was the first time he hit me. And uh, that was, he ruptured my eardrum and dragged me to the, to the street and kicked me out of our house. But I married him anyway. And that has a lot to do with the fact that I was not 
whole and healed, even though that children's home experience was a really good experience. All he was doing was more of the same. So I got this break, this children's home break where, and people laugh when I was like, that's the, those are the best years of my life. But when you look at what it was bookended on now, these are the best years of my life right now. It's hard to say that in the middle of pandemic, but, um, I know what but, up, mean, but up until that point, um, you know, so, so there were still so many broken pieces and, and, and he stood to fill those broken pieces. And so I stayed. Um, and, and for those of you listening, lots of women, lots of moms, lots of people, well-meaning people. Um, one of the questions that we don't like is why did you stay? Um, because that answer to that question is very, very, very complicated, but I did mm-hmm. stay and I stayed for 12 years it culminated in him putting a gun to my head, pulling the trigger. And I don't know whether the magazine was empty or the gun jammed, but it just clicked. And um, by that time I had gotten back in church. I had a community. I had people telling me what I didn't want to hear. We had a plan in place. I had suitcases all over the city of St. Augustine because I, then I told him the next time you hit me or tell me to leave our house, I'm going to do it. And so when he did it that night, one of the things that a smart domestic violence survivor does is leave on their terms so that we're not part of the one, the average domestic violence survivor will go back seven times. That was not going to be my story. I'm too stubborn for that. And so I waited. And so finally he, again, he got me to that another dark night of my soul. I, at that night I pushed him. He was drunk. I pushed him off of me, ripped everything in my right shoulder. Everything that is in there got ripped because he has about a hundred pounds on me. I just woke up the next morning, acted like nothing ever happened. And fast forward a couple of days, he went out of town. I left the country and never looked back. Um, He continued to cause problems for me. Um, That was 12 years ago. He caused problems for me for eight of those 12 years to the point where the state of Florida had a lifetime restraining order against him um, because he was threatening my life eight years later. Um, he He has since passed away. He died in a hotel room of a drug overdose by himself. All the things that I really fought to to not happen for the 12 years that I was married to him, for every, I call it my Red Sea prayer, for every night that I laid in bed and said, God, you parted the Red Sea. Why can't you fix this? And he didn't fix it. And so when I found out that he died in a hotel room, I remembered every night that I would lay in bed and pray my Red Sea prayer and I had another dark night of my soul just a year and a half ago when I found out that this man that I vowed to love, that I still loved, by the way, and that confuses most people, but I still loved because I don't believe you unlove somebody. I still loved him. And I was devastated mm-hmm. that he died by himself. Well, but Amy, isn't that hope? I mean, there's something inside of us that if you've ever cared for a person, you, yeah. you know, it's, it's called hope. I mean, I can't speak from a place of being abused and neglected as a child or as a married woman. But I can tell you that there's some relationships in my life that are not great. And while I don't have a whole lot of hope that things will change, I still do have a hope. You know what I mean? Like, there's this moment sometimes where you're like, Oh, the reason why it feels so disappointing is because I did have hope that something would be different. Very true. And and that you could not have articulated a domestic violent violence 
survivor or somebody that's currently in a domestic violence situation, you could not have articulated our mantra better, mm. the hope for a better day. Because at one point we marry these, these people and we clearly there's something in it. There's lots of redeeming things. And, and John Watson that I loved and, and, and cherished and, and we built a business together and built a life together. And so, yeah, that, that was our prayer. And so when he died, it was, yeah, it, but what it does for my heart, even retelling you this story and, and, and another part of my story, I don't share many places, but, but when he died, it was just this, these emotions all over the place, but it was cathartic in a lot of ways, because I believe that, um, you know, one day I'll see him again. I hope, I hope mm -hmm. that, uh, he, after I left, he laid in bed one night and said, maybe there's something to Amy's Jesus thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope that's the way I, that's the way I, I, I tend to that pain in my heart. Um, well, can I ask you a really personal question too? And please feel free to be like, I'm not answering that. But was there a little bit of relief of this guy can't hurt me anymore? It's a great question. And thank you for asking it. Yes, yeah. it was Amber. It was every emotion under the sun. I have, I have five star friends and they're all of my favorites on my phone. And I just texted John's dead, John's dead to, to about 12 people. They then get on a group text and like, hallelujah, the wicked witch is dead. And I'm like, wait, no, no. Mm -hmm. But, but I did feel safe at that point because I could then stop. I, I was on lockdown on social media, always looking over my shoulder because his threats, his threats were violent. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And then, and then of course there was this guilt, like being relieved that somebody is gone. Yes. Yeah. You know? And so every emotion that you can imagine, it, it, there's a song called Whiskey Lullaby by Brad Paisley and Alison Krauss. You're mm -hmm. probably going to cut, you're probably going to cut this part, but. Oh, heck um, no. I love it. I like that song. I grew but, up in the country, girl. I'm not as scared of that stuff. But I, I, I wrote a blog about this. I actually blame it on Peyton Manning's retirement speech because he made me cry. <laughs> But it was right. But that that day when Peyton Manning, that's how I know when John died, um, I oh, wow. played that song Whiskey Lullaby because it, the second verse of that song, it says she never forgave, forgave herself. Yep. And I still struggle with that. I'm not going to lie right. to you. I well, still but that's part of that. the post-traumatic stress, right? Yes, so it, is, it is. Dive let's in. dig yeah. into that a little bit because you went on this journey after your divorce that was still very, very painful and yeah. filled with some addiction and some struggles and figuring out that you had post-traumatic stress. And so I, I don't even know what question to ask specifically about that, except for maybe tell us a little bit about those first four to five years after you walked away from John. Yeah, good question. And one that I'm happy to share with you. Um, I moved back to Clearwater, um, which everybody knows that the West side is the best side of the state of Florida. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so I moved back to Clearwater, which in hindsight was one of the I smartest. I have to agree, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And you and I have a connection. That's a whole other thing, but, um, that's right. but um, so I moved back to Clearwater, which as it would turn out would be one of the better, best decisions I ever made because it put physical distance between him and me to make a very long story short, Jesus placed me in a church at the corner of McMullen Booth and Drew Calvary church in Clearwater, Florida. Mm. 
And um, I ended up teaching at that school uh, because I have my my degree is in biology, came out of the business world, wanted nothing to do with it. Those that first year was kind of like, you know, I was just I just walked around in a zombie. I was really being fed by the kids. I loved those kids so much. They called me Watson, which is kind of actually where every where it all comes from. They call me Watson. And I was the cool teacher and got in trouble from the principal all the time. And, you know, that kind of stuff. So those were light light days but what what weren't light days is after i left him of course i moved in by into an apartment by myself we were very successful we lived in st augustine beach three three blocks from the beach and if you've ever been even though i just said the west side is the best side the east coast especially st augustine with waves it's just a whole listen the whole state of florida but don't come here and move well you were a florida Um, fan i see i wasn't born there and this is what i gotta tell listeners because they know they hear me complain about it all the time that i couldn't stand tampa but here's the thing you have Florida that's amazing and beautiful and you can afford to live on the beach and it's gorgeous. And then really you have everything else, which is like little tiny stone houses that are not bad, but right. it's not always what you see in the movies. Oh that's no. And it, co- it costs, right. It costs, <laughs> it, it, absolutely. No. And it's not, it's not all palm trees and, oh, you know, and, 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 and stuff like that. And, you know, and all the, all the, all the news reports that lead with a Florida man. It's not that's all right. that easy. <laughs> Even though I said, guess what, Sam, you know, who was on Dateline today? Somebody from Polk a County, Florida you man. know. It's always Polk it's County. Always Polk County. It's always Polk or County. Or Dade, or Dade. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so, and, and then became very good friends with uh, the pastor's wife at that church. Still a very dear friend of mine was on the season finale of my podcast but those nights, who Amber, man, oh man, those nights in that dark apartment reminded me of that prison room, even though it wasn't locked in there. Um, I moved, I, I moved out of a 3000 square foot house into a 750 square foot apartment that was scary and dark and lonely. And so I began to cope by taking, I had, um, had back surgery and found that, uh, pain pills were really effective at helping me deal with all of this. And so I began to doctor shop and uh, very much had uh, a dependence on uh, opioid pain medication just to go to sleep at night. But I was also very convicted about that. And that's not the life that I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. One night, my flashbacks were so bad that I took a clonopin for, which is like a Xanax um, in that family. For every night that, for every hour that I saw that the clock click, I took a clonopin. I just wanted to go to sleep. I did not want to die. I just wanted to go to sleep, but I didn't care if I lived either. And so I never did go to sleep, went to school the next day, taught my six classes and I didn't teach basket weaving. I, I have a degree in biology. I taught anatomy and physiology. I taught chemistry and then I have an MBA. So I taught an intro to business college class. And so I taught six full classes after having not slept and taken nine clonopin. Well, I had a Girl. break. I know, right? Those kids probably didn't learn anything. Um, but I went down and on my break to talk to just to kind of hang out with the vice principal a gentleman by the name of Aaron Walp, who I don't know where he is, but he saved my life. Hmm. I told him he was an ex Pinellas County Sheriff's officer. And I told him what I did. And he said, um, do you think that you can teach your last class? And I looked at him like he was crazy. I was like, I've been teaching all day. Yeah, I can teach my last class. He said, come back down here when you're done. And I said, okay, no, no big deal. So I did. And and I went back down. And when I did, Cheryl, my friend Cheryl was sitting there and she had her purse and her keys. And she said, Aaron's made some phone calls and um, we're going to take you somewhere to get you some help. 
I, they, at that point, diagnosed me with a severe case of complex post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, anxiety, um, not necessarily depression. I am fortunate in that regard. I don't have the chemical issues with depression. Of course, I wasn't, it wasn't an awesome time in life, but the PTSD came in such flashbacks and such floodings. And for those listeners who don't know what that is, it's just basically reliving the event and having the, the, the inability to realize that it's 2021 and not 1978. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that was going on. So I spent five days in the hospital, 30 days in outpatient um, treatment, finished that year teaching and uh, could could not do that anymore for a variety of reasons, health reasons and stuff like that, because my body had begun to keep the score of the trauma. And then just over the next several years, just continued to, um, I'm still in counseling um, every two weeks, but continued to do some really hard work. Um, but about six years ago, we started to do some cutting edge therapies and, and I began to experience some healing of, uh, and, and when I say healing, I mean, like it takes the Uber pain away from it. So like, like I broke my wrist 16 months ago or 18 months ago or something. I'm, and it hurts. Like if I do this, like, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. flexing my Moving wrist. Your hand, yeah. Right. And so doing the podcast and writing and talking about it. Yeah. It hurts then, but it doesn't hurt that bad. Right. Not like it did 18 months ago because they put a cast on it and they, and, and, and I did PT and all of those things. And so the hard work that I've done in counseling allows me to talk about this and it still hurts and you can hear it in my voice but it takes the uber pain yeah. away from it and it gives it purpose. Life is still hard, but God is still faithful and his grace so sufficient. And then well, if you, and if you brought up in church you go for even me. And- <laughs> <laughs> so tell me though cuz something that I want to encourage listeners is there's so much more to this story. There's so many people who have come along on Amy's path in her faith walk, in her healing journey, just loved her in amazing ways. And so you can hear so much of that on her podcast that is Wednesdays with Watson. But what I want you to tell our listeners is the way that your counselor, maybe it's your doctor, maybe it's both, um, it's both. described post-traumatic stress disorder, like what actually happens in your brain. And you and Chrissy were talking about it today on episode one in season two, just so people kind of understand, because it was really an aha moment for me of like, okay, I get that. So what does it mean like brain wise, when you're talking about, um, you know, like, why would it happen to you because of this and not because of the abuse you happened to you as a child? Right. So there's two things that are misunder heavily misunderstood. And I'm that this is this is the fun part of talking about this, because I, I'm a science person, when I understand it, then I can't then I can deal with it. And so yeah, right. So, so we are all made uniquely. I love everybody whoever hears me speak knows that I love Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made my fingerprint, unlike your fingerprint, no brain similar in the whole world, right? Right. So a lot of times we, there's, there's a couple things that happen, but let me first start by answering your question. And then I'm going to, I'm going to go somewhere, but, but trauma is clinically defined as any event that pushes your brain. So Amber's brain, listener's brain, Susie's brain, Mary's brain outside of, and this is an actual clinical term window of tolerance. And so for example, Uh, somebody could have my story and not have PTSD, believe it or not. 
because their window of tolerance, all of that trauma fit inside their ability, their brain's wiring, the physical weight, not their, not their will, not their wit, not their desire to outwork it, but the way their brain, God made their brain. And God said, you got this lane of stuff that your brain can handle. And after that, we're going to have a problem. And that's what we call a window of tolerance. And you and listeners can't see it, but that's why there's a window pane right behind me on my wall to remind me of that of a window of tolerance. Um, And so, so that's what trauma is, is any event that pushes you outside a window of tolerance. And so a lot of people will get diagnosed with PTSD and be shocked because they'll say, but man, when I was little, I got hit by a car and, or when I was in college, this happened, or I, I saw this terrible car accident. I've been through all that other stuff. Why did getting a splinter in my finger give me PTSD? Hmm. And sometimes it's the event pushes you outside a window of tolerance. And sometimes it is just time and for you to deal. It is just time for it to all come out in the light. And that's why it's so important for us not to compare our pain. I'm hesitant to go on podcasts. I'm hesitant to tell my story on my podcast. If I'm being honest with you in a true moment of transparency, and I hope my soon-to-be agent is not listening to this from my book, I don't write about these things because I don't want to think about them. But God said, yes, you are going to think about them and you're going to heal as you do it. But I get nervous about it when I write and I think about people picking up my book because I don't want people to put it down and go, I don't have that kind of trauma. So I, my, my pain doesn't matter, but your pain may have pushed your brain outside the window of tolerance. Does that mean you have a a complex case of post-traumatic stress disorder? Like, like I do probably not, but, but it needs to be addressed. If it's bothering you, if you're asking a question, when you push stop at the end of this podcast, do I have PTSD? You need to go ask somebody that can actually help you with that question. Because even after being diagnosed in the hospital, a couple years later in my counselor's office, I said, do I have PTSD? And his jaw dropped. The man's been doing this for 30 years. His <laughs> jaw dropped. He sat back in his chair and he said, in spades. And so the understanding of PTSD, so many people think it's just military, but it's any event that pushes us outside of our window of tolerance. Let me tell you, the last 12 calendar months has pushed most people outside of their window of tolerance. January 6th, 2021. It's been the longest, the, the, these, these, I don't know when this will air, but this has been the longest 13 year day, you know, we've had and forever. (laughs) I mean, it's like 13 days feels like we've already gone through four years, but the events in the United States, because I know you like me have listeners all over the world, the events in the United States, if, if you watched that, uh, you very likely might've been pushed outside of your window of tolerance, especially as a mom. I know you have a lot of moms. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine what you guys are thinking. When you lay in bed at night, you close your eyes in those dark moments when it's just you and Jesus and or in, in the shower and you're thinking, what what kind of world is Levi going to live in? What kind of world is Zoe going to live in? What kind of world is Bennett going to live in? What are we leaving for them? Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's so important for us to understand trauma. It's understand. It's important for us to 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 address it. It's it's important for us to address it early. Science tells us if we address trauma early in a counselor's office, or or that that it does less physical damage to your brain. Mm-hmm. I tell a story of how I had nine lesions on my brain from an MRI. Went through six months of of, of therapy, and and four were gone. 
And so my message to, to the listeners, your listeners, especially moms, because I know that's a big, your big audience is guys, if you're asking the question, find somebody smarter than you, because if you're asking the question, there's a reason why you're asking the question. And let me tell you something else. PTSD is not a weakness. PTSD is like, I like my broken arm. I just needed to cast in some physical therapy and, and PTSD and trauma just needs God brought us these people for a reason to help us. Well, and I, I love it, Amy, because I'm the type of person that I'm like, listen, it doesn't help anybody for you to look and be like, you just got to give that over to God. Because I believe that with my whole heart, that God is the one that does the work. I believe it with my whole heart that Jesus came to die for me and you and I need him and I don't need anybody else. But at the same time, I do need somebody else because God did not put community on earth for us because we didn't need it. Right. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. Right? And that's the thing. So many yeah. people, you only need Jesus. Well, I don't know. Did he actually say that? Because pretty sure in his word, he's saying you actually need other people to be a healthy human being. Right. And he had 12 people that he hung out with in his community. Right. And That's so, right. yeah. And you say saying need in a way where they should determine your value or they should be what gives you hope or, but they should be what's who supports you and spurs you on in good works and points you towards, Hey, you need to go to counseling because yes. what's going on with you. You're not handling it well alone and we can't handle it for you. Right. And it's so important to know when you can't handle it, when it's above your pay grade as a friend. I can't Absolutely. That's so important and such a really, really good point is that you got to know when to refer. Um, Because, because, uh, and that's the kindest, most loving thing you can do for somebody is say, you're not okay. Just using those words, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. Because when you say that to somebody, wow, they noticed, they love me. I am seen, known, loved, heard, and valued. And I am God's beautiful creation. And, and we bring all this pain and brokenness. And I, like you, Amber, Jesus is absolutely the star of my story. There is no way I sit here and talk to you today without Jesus. There's, and there's no way you sit here and talk to me without Jesus. Mm-hmm. There's no way your listeners who have been through trauma, who are on the other side, as I air quote, do anything without Jesus, the star who brought community, who told us about community. And so, yeah, it's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus, but it's Jesus gave me this. Mm-hmm. Community. Why wouldn't I use it? That's right. Well, and as we begin to close up, and again, I encourage people that want to learn more to go and listen to your show, but you talk a lot about the three C's and we're kind of talking about that now. Close us out by what are those three C's and just a little bit about how they have been crucial in teaching you to not so much heal completely from PTSD, because it's something that really what you have to do is learn to deal with it on a daily basis. That is correct. And so share those three with us, because like I said, we've talked about it a little bit, but I just love yeah. the specifics of it yeah, so the as three we close C's, out. Yeah, thank you so much. The three C's are church. Um, community and trauma-informed counseling. Church, I think of the day that I sat at the corner of McMullen Booth and Drew, decided to go to a Bible study at when I, after my divorce, saved my life. Church is crucial. Church is where you find the the people to raise your arms up like like Aaron 
and her did for Moses. Um, community, no way you do life without community. No way, um, no not way. Well. That, <laughs> not well, not well. I was in a dark apartment, gonna die, but I had a community of people that uh, would come and say, no, we love you. We're not letting you do this. We're taking you to the hospital. Trauma-informed counseling, um, I again would not be here. And for listeners who are listening, uh, my podcast raised some money last year. If you find yourself in a situation where you need help and you can't afford it, I'd like to give you a website. We raised almost a full year pro bono counseling um, one week. Uh, we about $900 short, but we will have, by the time the full calendar year goes, we will have raised for a full week. Counseling is crucial. I would be not alive without counseling. I have a real burden for people that can't afford counseling. And so we raise money for, uh, uh, these guys are in the biblical counseling lane. If you can't afford it, go to baylightcounseling.com. So Bay, like Tampa Bay, light, like the light of Jesus, counseling, like I'm talking about, .com. Tell them that you heard about the Wednesdays with Watson podcasts and apply for um, a scholarship to get some help. Thank you, Amy. So Amy, where can everybody find you? Dude, you know, all the places, uh, <laughs> just if you Google Wednesdays with Watson, um, or Amy Watson author.com, uh, that, that is all of my socials, um, with the exception of Instagram, which is author Amy Watson. And that's a whole nother story for another day. But if you Google, uh, Wednesdays with Watson or Amy Watson author, you will find me and please do. I would love to do community with anybody who hits stop and goes, I'd like to ask her a question. Well, Amy, I love you, girl. Um, you. Like you say to so many of your guests, you are seen, you are known, you are loved, and you are valued. And I am grateful to God that he has brought you into my life. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. And right back at you. And thank you for helping me on my podcasting journey since I'm so far behind you. Thank you. I really, really have looked forward to this. And, and it's been such an honor. Do you believe it? Do you believe God sees you? He knows you, he loves you, and you are valued in his kingdom. Oh, how I hope you believe it. As we close out, I want to remind you to visit graceenoughpodcast.com to receive the free resource available for download, 10 Scripture Prayers to Calm Your Heart. While you're on the website, check out today's show notes Grace Enough podcast merchandise, and how you can support the podcast moving forward. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys. You know, a pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?